Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack, or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Season 4, Episode 10, Tell Me My Story with Dimple Dabalia. Dimple Dabalia is the founder of Roots in the Clouds, a boutique consulting firm specializing in using the power of story to heal individual and organizational trauma and moral injury. She is also a writer, a podcaster, a coach, and a facilitator who brings over 20 years of public service experience working at the intersection of leadership, mindful awareness, and storytelling. Her first book, Tell Me My Story, Challenging the Narrative of Service Before Self, will be available in February 2024. You can find her podcast, What Would Ted Lasso Do?, on your favorite podcast platform. Look for her at rootsintheclouds.com and across social media at Dimp Story. Before we explore this week's story, I have a question for you. What about your stories? Whether it's a book project that wants to be birthed, deep, authentic writing to support your business, or a personal creative project you can't quite name yet, I am here as your story healer and writing coach who can walk beside you throughout your process and help you get the words onto the page and into the world. I work with folks who are writing memoirs, chronicles of the spiritual journey, and books that explore healing and the imagination, even as they reckon with the toughest truths of life. I support entrepreneurs, especially coaches and therapists in private practice, who wish to weave their personal experiences with their professional knowledge and wisdom. Do you want to build a writing practice and develop the ideas you know you must share? I invite you to visit my website, marisagowdy.com, to learn more about my writing coaching services and to set up a free 30-minute consultation. As one year ends and a new one begins, I wish you time for deep, nourishing reads and the space to do the writing that only you can do. In this episode, our guest Dimple Devalia reads to us from a later section of her forthcoming book, Tell Me My Story. She shares a moment of deep realization. Her life's work as a humanitarian, and specifically her career as an asylum officer, was actually a direct response to her own family's refugee history. She just didn't know it when she started on that path. You'll hear a part of her uncle's story and his expulsion from Uganda during the regime of Idi Amin. This is followed by a conversation about the power of story in ancient myth, in personal narratives, and in the war zones of today. Well, I am so excited to welcome Dimple to the podcast today to share with us an excerpt from her book, Tell Me My Story. As is our way at Notwork Storytelling, we first ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll explore all the ways that it continues to resonate and shape our lives today. 
So Dimple, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited you're here. Will you tell us the story? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. My own early stories were shaped by generational trauma, displacement, instability, and personal experiences with violence and subtle acts of exclusion. Until writing this book, I couldn't fully see how those experiences not only shaped my identity, but influenced every decision I made in my personal and professional life, including my choice to work in service of others. Soon after passing the California bar exam in 2003, a few months after I got married, I was hired to work at a small private law firm in Anaheim that focused primarily on real estate cases. I knew from the first day that the work the firm was doing wasn't the right fit for me, but I took the job and then stayed with it out of fear that I wouldn't be able to find something else and the pressure I felt to contribute financially to my household. I felt zero sense of purpose there, and I longed to feel connected to humanity in some way. Since law school, I had repeatedly declared that I wanted to work on humanitarian and human rights issues, but I didn't know what that might look like or why I was so drawn to this particular area of practice. Only after I got my job as an asylum officer did I begin connecting the dots. On a trip to Princeton, New Jersey, for the holidays to visit my parents and my uncle Yash, about a year into my role as an asylum officer, I sat with my uncle in the living room telling him about my job. It has been amazing. This is my dream job. It's everything I've been wanting to do since graduating from law school. My words tumbled out, propelled by excitement. So what exactly do you do? My uncle asked as he took a long swig of his beer. I sit down with asylum seekers, people who have been persecuted because of their race, religion, nationality, social group, or political opinion, and have somehow made their way to the United States. And I interview them. I ask them about what happened in their country and why they can't go back. Then I research country conditions, and if the research supports what the applicant is telling me, I approve their application for asylum. Sometimes we also get the chance to go overseas and interview refugees. Same kind of circumstances, but they haven't been able to get to the United States. I'm still pretty new, so I don't know when I'll get to go on one of those trips, but I think it'd be amazing to be out there on the ground. My uncle nodded, head cocked to the side. He seemed deep in thought and then abruptly stood. Wait here. I want to show you something. He went into his bedroom and reemerged carrying a weathered gray, hard-sided suitcase. He set it down in front of me. Open it, he instructed as he resumed his position on the sofa. Oh, Dimple, thank you for giving us that little window into the story. And this is the part where, of course, we have to ask you, what was in the suitcase? <laughs> Great question. The suitcase was just a treasure trove of items. So my uncle had been a refugee, and so he had saved everything that written-wise. So his airline ticket from when he came to the United States his refugee identity card, his journals that he had kept when he was actually still in Africa. That's where he had grown up. So, and then letters that he had written to my aunts and like my mom and, and things that they had sent him. So it was just like this history that he had preserved, never knowing what he was going to do with it. And, and it ended up in my hands. <laughs> and of course, the other part of the story is that you didn't necessarily know any of this before you took this great shift in your own life path to do the work that you did for so many years. 
Yeah, that's what I that's the part that was so interesting to me, right? Is that this was a part of my family history. It was just a part we rarely talked about. Like I knew my family, my mom's side of the family had come from East Africa. I knew there had been this man, Idi Amin, but like I didn't know the ins and outs of what had happened. And and most of the family had gotten out before he put the orders into effect for the exclusion and things like that. And so our expulsion of South Asians. Yeah. And so when when I started like hearing these actual stories of what happened to my uncle Yash and then his older brother as well, so my mom's oldest brother, the things that they went through and then how they came out as refugees was really fascinating to me. And then the fact that I was so drawn to doing this work uh, without ever realizing that that was actually a part of my own history. So, yeah. And I know that intergenerational trauma is so much part of the reason you do the work that you do. And I also just want to highlight the fact that so often folks come to hear this show for the mythology and for the inherent magic in these stories. And though your book is so much more about modern memoir and what it's like to be a humanitarian in this world and what it's like to try to care for oneself in the face of so much pain, I love the way this story of yours just underlines the sense of like of the synchronicity and the unseen world and the ways in which you knew without yet knowing and it changed the whole path for you and then you came back and said oh i found i guess part of the core reason part of the source was always there inspiring you even though you didn't know it intellectually yet perhaps yeah and like when we talk about magic, right? Like I think, or the unseen, like I think there is this whole element of who we are that we don't even realize the things that have influenced, again, like the lens through which we experience the world. And I'm fascinated with intergenerational trauma because, and like, especially we're seeing more and more around like the science of epigenetics and things like that. So the things that embed at a cellular level I think is really fascinating, right? And so this whole thing about how it's very possible that, you know, my mom's fear and anxiety over what happened to her brother kind of passed its way down to me. And so without even recognizing that that's what was driving me was there was this need to like help people and protect people, right? And so just the way that these things tie together, I'm really, really fascinated by the whole thing. And that's the other piece of this is, The storytelling, I think, is important because we are, by nature, as humans, we are storytellers. But I get a lot of, like, looks sometimes when I'm talking about storytelling in the workplace because Mm. there's this idea, like, what? You know, (laughs) what do you mean storytelling in the workplace? But I think there's a lot of these kinds of elements that we're not taking into consideration about how we have a lot of people who show up in the workplace who are bringing their own kind of traumas with them right? Even Mm -hmm. ones they can't see or don't necessarily understand. And so when we think about this idea of how do we relate to each other, how do we support each other, that's kind of a piece of it. Mm, Yes. And that's really sort of speaks to one of the things that brought you and me together originally is that we both have adopted this title, I guess, for lack of a better word, of story healer. And that Mm -hmm. you and I embody it in such distinct ways. And yet I think there's so many ways in which our work has its chances to overlap and coalesce and come together. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that healing stories is, 
I think that's what life is about, right? Mm -hmm. We're all going to go through things throughout our lives. And the question is, can we develop the awareness to notice what our stories are, what our patterns are? And then can we develop the compassion, the self-compassion to move towards healing them? Because it's really amazing when you get to that side of it and you start, it's painful and it's challenging to heal our stories. But when we get to the other side of it, it's really amazing, you know? And I mean, I have plenty of stories left to heal, but the yes. ones that I have healed, like I I noticed the impact that it has on my own well-being and, and my relationships, things like that. So I'd love for you to walk us through a little bit your process of kind of becoming this story healer. It really, you know, it's obviously you're someone who grew up appreciating stories steeped in them, the known and unknown and in ways in which you knew that was affecting you and the ways in which you would later would discover it. But you really started as a story collector. I mean, in reading your book, I certainly didn't know anything about what it meant for folks from around the world to apply for asylum in the United States, right? So can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that whole process of collecting and holding people's stories? It was so immensely moving to read. Thank you. Thank you. I think there's a certain type of person who's drawn to this work <laughs> where we want to we want to bear witness to what's happening. And I still to this day think that it was such an immense privilege to be able to be in that position to sit and be a witness to what I mean, not just what people are experiencing, but be a witness to history happening, right? And it was hard, like it was really, really hard. Because when you're sitting there in front of a person who is telling you about the worst things that ever, ever happened to them, and you're expected to just be this professional. And, and so for many years, this was my coping strategy, right? Like I talk about this wall of professionalism that I created and that most of my colleagues have created, right? It's this idea that we can, we, we're going to be stoic and we're going to sit and we're, we're going to take it all in like they're facts and without really taking in the humanity of it. And I think you almost have to in order to hold that kind of pain at times. And the problem is, so so some people are better at this than others, I think, where they can hold people's pain. And like when we talk about empathy, right? Like empathy is the ability to be with the person in their pain without taking on their pain. And so those are two different things. Yeah. And I think for many years, I didn't understand that difference. So I just took in everybody's pain. And what was so fascinating to me was that, especially with asylum seekers, a lot of the stories I was listening to every day were mirroring stories from different parts of my life. Mm -hmm. So stories of displacement, those were things that I had experienced. Stories of violence, those were things that I had experienced. And so things that I was listening to, not only was I holding the other person's pain, but I was starting to sit in my own without realizing, I didn't think about like, oh, I experienced this many years ago or whatever, but it was there. And so those two things coming together, it just it got to a point for me where it broke me because it was just too much to carry. And so I didn't have a choice. Like you get to a point sometimes where there's that snapping point and you have no choice. If you're going to survive and move forward, you have to heal to do that. And so I was kind of forced into a place of healing. I still sometimes feel a little bit of imposter syndrome around this idea of story healer because it was very much something I fell into, or I guess 
that I was forced into because I didn't know how to hold all of this. And now like I've learned how to do that and how to be in that place of empathy, which is not doing anything extraordinary, but just my friend Kristen calls it just creating a ministry of presence, right? You're just being present to what the other person needs and then letting it go because it's not mine to hold for the rest of my life. Mm. You've said so much there, but I think the way I had offered it first is you once were a story holder and now you are a story healer. And then that, because that's a reflection of your own process and what you've gone through and the way you really just underline, this is what I learned so much from you is that sense of, because you really talk about working with humanitarians, but the most, one of the most fundamental requests, it seems, for you to survive in your work is to set the human aspect aside and say, yeah. well, I'll get to that later. And just really in reading your words, feeling the pain for you in, in doing that. And what certainly also came up for me in reading this was, as again, as you and I both hold this idea of story healer as it evolves, as we make it up, as it changes us. I sit with 2,000-year-old stories. I sit with mythology. And that really is like there's that recognition of saying, wow, that was that was the safe choice rather than the, I mean, looking at you and that brilliant work you've done and all of your colleagues and the difficult work of sitting with people on the front lines and, and the weight that one would kind of carry to say, wow, could I, should I do more and do it differently in this world is definitely a challenge that I came up across in, in reading your book, but yet. I think a really important one just to kind of keep landing in with, right, what's my story to tell? What's my story to live? What's my story to heal? How am I called to help? And it just kind of kept bringing me back to that sense of saying, well, stories are everywhere in that the deeply ancient in this moment, in the generations before, how do we keep showing up and learning from each other and learning from our own experiences so that, well, so we can really shift the whole narrative away from self-blame and blame of others and just see, I don't know, I just feel like I learned so much from you in terms of all this, I'm going to say the spectrum of being alive, of all these different ways, because you tell yeah. us your whole story and unfold so much for us and give people permission to see that for themselves too. I don't think any one type of storytelling is more important or worthy or any of that, right? And I think the work you're doing is so important, right? Because that early mythology is what shaped so much of who we've become in the modern times, right? Because you think about, and going back to the generations, right? The generations before us and what their beliefs were and what was passed down, all of that becomes part of who we are in this moment. Mm -hmm. And so I think that parsing out those stories is just as important to helping us understand who we are in this moment, right? It's different forms and different aspects of the same craft, right? <laughs> so again, like going back to generational, like I'm so fascinated by generational storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. So even I was just up in Toronto with family and I had a chance to see some of my aunts and I love sitting down and hearing their stories of like, not only from when like their childhood and stuff, and these were, this was the side of the family that was in East Africa. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of kind of looking back and, and thinking about what their childhood was like and things like that. 
but they they're the keepers of one to two generations before them, right? Because right. they heard those stories growing up. And so it's always to me like to be able to sit down with someone who has those generational stories is really interesting because there's so much there that I didn't know or I didn't know where these what our stories are came from. But what's really interesting and this is maybe going to sound a little woo is there's a a really phenomenal woman in in my writing group who does a lot of like uh, generational work and she had read parts of my story and and she made a comment to me one day about how uh, she said I get such a strong feeling when I read your work that you're healing generations of trauma for the women in your lineage and you know and that has really stayed with me because I and I believe it because I know coming from the cultures that I come from the way that women were treated and mistreated it's not surprising to me that I'm speaking to a lot of things that carry a lot of shame in my culture. Mm-hmm. I think most cultures, right? No one wants to talk about domestic violence. Nobody wants to talk about mental health issues, mental illness. But these were all things that I grew up seeing or experiencing and saying them out loud. Like it's scary. It's scary to put this book out into the world <laughs> and to have people know. Like I talk about this in the book that like I curated my life for the longest time. I I picked the stories I was going to share. And so now it's like I'm putting out like this is the real thing. And it's really scary mm-hmm. to do that. But I know that, you know, when we talk about story healing, healing requires us to go into those scary parts and sit with them and look at them and understand them and then let go of them. And we can't do that if we're not speaking to them, right? If we're pretending they don't happen, we can't heal those stories. Well, you're in really good company here in terms of this. For me, it's a fundamental understanding that our healing of intergenerational trauma is also ancestral healing and that they do, the ancestors gather round. We are their fulfilled hopes, right? When we yep. do that work, yep. it works in multi-directional because far be it for me or any of us to think we understand the way that time and, and the, the exactly. web of existence works, right? Yes, yes. So a thousand percent to to that. I I, I know that in my bones, you know, mm-hmm. that sense of that that's a huge reason why we're called to do this work as storytellers, whether or not we're looking to telling the stories of recent lifetimes or whether we're looking back, retelling stories from the oldest mythologies or whether we're we think we're writing something about the future. Mm-hmm. We're always writing it about where we are now and where we've been and trying to make sense of of these great mysteries of life, I suppose, at the, at the fundamental level. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to also honor the fact that, you know, having you on the show at this moment and we've my recent episodes have been touching on this more and more in the sense that we are a world that's more aware than ever of being at war. We're more aware than ever of conflict. And as you and I have talked about specifically, it's the ways in which stories And narratives are really shaping this moment as, you know, you and I are both sitting in the United States, looking across the ocean to knowing what's happening right now in the Middle East, what's happening in Gaza and what has happened in Israel. I would just love to go there with you a bit and ask you to sort of guide us through from your perspective what it is to look to these stories, hear what stories are making it to us, and maybe whatever insights you may have of what's happening right now. Yeah, yeah. 
And I'd also add to that, I mean, Ukraine, right? Like Ukraine has been at war for even longer at this point. But yeah, I always think it's interesting. To me, again, this all comes down. So the the tagline for my book is challenging the narrative of service before self. Mm -hmm. But I think to me, like story healing is about challenging narratives in general, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that with things like like wars in particular, when I look at what's happening in Israel and Palestine right now, or uh, Gaza, there are so many narratives needing to be challenged, right? So first of all, there's challenging our own narratives around it. So if you come down strongly on one side or the other, taking a pause to look at like, well, where does my perspective on this come from? How has it been shaped? Like I talk a lot about shaping stories. The media is a huge player in in shaping our our narratives, right? Um, as a culture and often as individuals. Um, and so really like taking a step back to look at like, well, where's my information coming from? What is it that's making me view this from this perspective? And going back to the idea of decoupling the humanity, like that's the piece that that I really struggle with because I, I personally like I think, Hamas's attack was, I mean, it was abhorrent, like to see so many people harmed in Israel the way that they were. I mean, it's just anywhere, anywhere that things like this happen, it's terrible. And so my my heart definitely went out for people in Israel. Having said that, I also spent a lot of time working in the Middle East. Like I interviewed tons of people in the Middle East. I, I lived and worked in Jordan for a long time, which a lot of people who are stateless from the Palestinian territories, they're all in Jordan. And so mm-hmm. I understand it is not as cut and dry. It's not, you know, we often want things to be like this black and white, easy, you know, here's what the story is and it's done. But there's so many shades of gray in all of this. And what I, what is interesting, though, is like looking at the newer generation coming up, though, and so you've got a lot of younger Israelis who are saying, no, like we we don't agree with what's happening. And so being curious about like, well, so what's shaping their narratives, right? Because they come from a long line of definite views on the topic. To me, like it's a lot of looking at what those stories are and then being able to kind of step back if we choose to. And I think that's the other thing is a lot of times this becomes so heated and because it is political, right, it's all politically based, mm-hmm. we sometimes get so caught up in it that we can't even step back enough to see, like, with a more objective eye. But mm-hmm. again, how do we heal conflicts in these regions? Like, I think a lot of it has to come from story healing. and But it's on such a large scale, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're talking about entire cultures of people that would need to, like, sit down and... Did you ever hear about like, for example, like in Rwanda and South Africa, they used to do the truth and reconciliation committees, right? Yeah. I was always really fascinated by that because I used to think I interviewed a lot of people who had survived the the 94 genocide in Rwanda. And I used mm-hmm. to think like, how could you possibly sit down with someone who massacred your family and like move past it? It just seems like it would be so painful. But I think that's what a lot of this was, was pulling those stories out 
everyone sitting with them, talking them through, and then like working on healing. And it's not a perfect science. It's not, you know, once it's healed, it's done. Like mm-hmm. there's, I, I think for every one step forward we take towards healing, we have like two where we go back. And so it's a constant process like that. Oh, something about just the way you're you're sharing that just bringing tears to my eyes. And I think that that's that recognition of it's okay that these stories bring tears to our eyes and they're they're supposed to. And yeah. then there's that balance too of saying, but we can't spend every day weeping and on our knees as we're trying to live our lives. And I think so many yeah. of us are in that twist right now of trying to figure out which way to be and that it's always <laughs> that we it's not just about one way. But what I'm thinking of as you're saying that is 1994 compared to 2023 and sitting down in circles and talking and knowing that right now we're in such a different world when it comes to the fact that stories aren't presented in circles, stories are presented in feeds. And it's mm-hmm. it's first this one, then this one of social media and that sense of trying to discern amidst a million pieces of information rather than that ability to sit in circle and share story and see the human mm-hmm. sharing what happened to them. Yeah. And that's the other thing of this, right? Is there's so much dehumanization mm-hmm. to get people to this point of being in a war, right? So we look at what how Russia was trying to dehumanize people in the Ukraine. And we see Israel doing that a lot with people in Gaza. There's such a dehumanization. The fact that you know, when you have innocent children being kind of targeted for death, there's so much of like a deep-seated story there that leads to dehumanizing individuals. And I think that when you can see the humanity in another person, it's much harder to want to inflict pain or suffering on them. If we can see the humanity in each other, we're going to at least like pause before we take an action like that. For me personally, that's been a real struggle in watching what's happening is that I just think, how can you go after an entire population of people and lump them together and then just act like they're not human, like you're calling them animals, you're calling them all these kinds of things. And that's what's helping to perpetuate the story for others, right? Right. And so that that's the part that I really struggle with is that at the end of the day, every one of these people, they're still human beings and we may not agree with them. We may not want to support them, but at the same time, like they still deserve to have a life. And I think that's what's hard. And I had, I normally like with, especially with family, I tend to just kind of not engage as much, especially if we're all together and things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, we have a, a pretty big, extensive family um, WhatsApp group. And someone had forwarded a post about how Israel had produced so many more Nobel Prize winners than Gaza. And I was like, like the whole, and it was just, it was such an inflammatory um, piece and I couldn't like I couldn't hold back and I had to like say something. And and I talked about how, number one, understanding where your information is coming from. But I think the other piece of the stories is that we often forget about is is privilege, right? Like mm-hmm. the privilege that we so yeah, you know what? There probably is a lot more people. There are are a lot more people from Israel who have won Nobel Prizes, but you also look at you've got an entire population of people who literally 
are trying to just like hold on to their homes. They're not getting access to education. They're not getting access to like any kind of stability. So how do you expect them to come out of that to, you know, get to a point of like getting a Nobel Prize, right? Well, and you know what I'm really, it kind of connects what you're saying earlier in that sense of part of what this, the dehumanization is that to, is to equate others with animals. And mm. knowing that, you know, part, core of my work and why I study mythology is this, I look to the more than human world and knowing what are all our interrelationships with the animals that live in our, and the land itself and the elements and knowing that that's where the stories of, that created the cultures we live in now were originally about how we co-evolve with this entire planet, with all of our ecosystems. And so it's just striking me in thinking about, you know, your family equating worth and value with Nobel Prizes, which is, there's a lot of wonderfulness in that, in, sure. in, in that, of course, and it is the most human-centric perspective on what it means to be successful that we probably have ever established in the history of our species. 100%. You know, and it's, it's, it's interesting as we start to sort of land our conversation talking so much about humanitarianism and what it means to be human. I could just say, speak for myself and say what it means to be human is to recognize that we live in a world that is larger than us and our human conflicts. And perhaps a lot of the core of what we've lost and what we try to take from one another comes from the sense that we forget that we're part of a much larger web. Yeah. And it goes beyond our world, right? Like, I think that this universe as a whole, like, there's so much out there we don't know. And to your point, you know, even in my culture, a lot of, you know, our historical texts, our, our religious texts, things like that, <laughs> I laugh because when I wrote my senior thesis in college and I talked about the mythology of Hinduism and my mom got so mad at me <laughs> because <laughs> this is not mythology to a lot of people. But and you think back to, you know, other cultures and other forms of mythology, we know that there's different forms of like animals, humans and, and the elements like you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And like that's one thing I really love about Native American and First Nations peoples, like their their stories, right? I don't know if you watch um, Reservation Dogs. I haven't seen it yet. It's on my list. Mm. And one of my favorite TV shows ever. I think everybody should see it. But I thought they did such a beautiful job of bringing in a lot of the mythology and the storytelling into how they presented those episodes. And so I think like even in this country that we sit in, the very soil is just permeated with the the stories of, you know, the people who are here for generations. And so, mm -hmm. so I think it is so much bigger than us. And to think that it's not, number one, I think it's not realistic, but it's also incredibly like short-sighted and egotistical to think that we're the only ones, you know? Yeah. So. Well, Dimple, I'm so grateful that we got to have this conversation and it has taken us across so many aspects of the human experience and the more than human experience. <laughs> but are there any other thoughts or ideas you'd like to leave us with about around story healing, around your story, around the telling of stories and the sharing of stories? 
I mean, I think I would just say that, again, stories are inherent to who we are as human beings. Mm. And the more that we talk about our stories, the more we share our stories, like I think that to me is the most powerful part of this is sharing our stories. The more that we get to that point of healing, because we can start to let go of some of the things that have held us back. And so I'd say share as much as you can. I'm going to be starting in the new year monthly story sharing circles. And so if anybody's interested, definitely keep an eye out for those. But they'll just be based on a particular theme, and it'll just be an opportunity to gather in community to to share our stories with each other. So, Well, on that note, would you tell folks a little bit more about your work and how they can find you? Yeah, thank you. So I am on most social media platforms, but I prefer uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find me at Dimp Story across all of those platforms. Uh, I'm also on Substack at Dear Humanitarian, and so I'm actually trying to cultivate a community over there as well, so definitely check that out. And my book, Tell Me My Story, Challenging the Narrative of Surface Before Self, comes out February 21st, but pre-sales start on Saturday, December 9th. So please pick up a copy, order a copy, gift a copy. (laughs) I really hope to get this book out to as many people as possible. And even though I'm talking about humanitarians, humanitarians is really, really broadly defined Mm -hmm. uh, as anyone working to alleviate pain and suffering in this world. So if you're a first responder, if you're a person, part of the medical community, if you are a member of the clergy, like there's so many people that this book really applies to. And so please uh, definitely check it out and share it with others who might be able to use it. And I can speak as a reader who doesn't necessarily fit into the audience you were writing for. There's still that sense of, first of all, the stories are immensely compelling and really bring you to your knees. And also just that sense of, of an appreciation and a way to hold those that you love or care about who are in your community who are doing this sort of work and who have have a sort of perspective that that many of us perhaps don't if we're in you know I can speak for those of us who are in the coaching professions or in other places where we get to hold individuals who have a degree of privilege there's a really important sense of how to help hold the stories of those who we get to know and love and work with who have devoted their lives to a different sort of healing and helping and helping to craft a better world. Thank you. Thank you. Dimple, thank you so much for sharing so much of your story. I'm so excited to continue to keep learning from you. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub. Myth is medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy. 
a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billionbath.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.